Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Disasters always shock us. We're totally taken by surprise. In this episode, a disaster that came with no warning at all. One of the strongest earthquakes in history. And we're going to explore some things that we learned in that disaster that might help us in the current pandemic. Lessons from the Great Alaska Quake with John Muallam. You really need to look at civilians as a resource rather than an obstacle. We can't afford to have people in disaster situations feeling like they don't have a role to play, right? They need to feel empowered and capable um, because we need all the help we can, we can get. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, I don't know if you know this, but I actually lived in Alaska for a little while before I went to college. That doesn't totally surprise me, given that you're such an outdoor adventurous kind of guy. You know, and when I was there, people still talked about the great earthquake of 1964. I spent a lot of time in the town of Valdez that was so damaged, they actually moved the whole town to a new location. So when I heard about this new book about the Alaska earthquake, I was especially excited to read it. And that book is called This is Chance, the Shaking of an All-American City, a voice that held it all together. It's the story of the earthquake and the surprisingly resourceful ways that the people of Alaska responded to it. In this moment, there are some takeaways for our current pandemic. Author John Muallam is a writer for The New York Times Magazine, among several others. He joins us from beautiful Bainbridge Island in Puget Sound, Washington, Welcome to our virtual recording studio at How Do We Fix It? Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us what happened in Alaska on March 27, 1964. Yeah, well, that was a good Friday just before sundown. And uh, all of a sudden, just as the town was kind of winding down for the holiday weekend, uh, the earth started shaking and it shook for uh, four and a half minutes in, in Anchorage, and uh, this became known as the Great Alaska Earthquake. It was the uh, most powerful earthquake uh, in in North America. It still is, and and it's still the second most powerful one ever ever recorded. Um, and it really just uh, you know, in addition to all of the the physical damage and loss of life and resulting tsunamis and and destruction that comes from a disaster like that, it also really just upended uh, people psychologically. I think. 
And Anchorage was Alaska's only major city at the time and was especially hard hit. In, in what kind of ways? Yeah, I mean, really, it was the only community in Alaska that an, that an outsider would have even probably even deigned to, to call a city at, at that point. There were a lot of smaller communities that were that were much uh, more severely damaged, even some small native villages that were more or less obliterated by by tsunamis. Uh, but because Anchorage was really the community in Alaska that had the most infrastructure, the most buildings, the most population, um, it was the place where you could recognize the damage, uh, you know, mo- the damage seemed most dramatic. Uh, you had giant crevasses that that uh, shot through the main downtown area of, of Anchorage on 4th Avenue, uh, leading uh, half of the main thoroughfare, 4th Avenue, to just uh, drop about 12 or 15 feet straight down uh, with all the restaurants and bars just you know, plum- plummeting as though they were on an elevator. Many parts of the city were, were not only completely unrecognizable, but the damage had occurred in a way where it was even difficult for people, you know, the next morning to, to look and try to figure out exactly what had happened. You know, had had this building, uh, you know, sunk or did this did the road rise? Uh, you know, was was this building even even there or was it, you know, 10 inches uh, uh, further to the right yesterday? John, you tell the story of the earthquake partly through the voice and observations of an Anchorage radio and TV host, Jeannie Chance. Now, I spent many years as a radio reporter, so this part of the story really hit me. Who was Jeannie Chance? Yeah, Jeannie was uh, 37 years old at the time. She was a part-time radio reporter, a news reporter at this station, KENI. She was also a working mother. She had three uh, small children at home. And her family was really representative of um, the kind of people who had come to Alaska after statehood in 1959. So this was just five years before the quake. They, they came from Texas. They were quite poor there and struggling to support themselves. And like a lot of people from around the country came up to Alaska after statehood uh, looking for, for better opportunities. So Jeannie, um, you know, she wasn't really content to do what women in broadcasting at that time were, were expected to do, which was, you know, host a show about homemaking or, or swap recipes. Um, she really uh, muscled her way into this role as a, as a roving reporter uh, going around Anchorage with this small radio unit in her car and reporting on the news of the day. And so when the quake hit, she was actually in the car with her, with her son. And uh, as soon as the, the shaking stopped, uh, she immediately understood that as a news reporter, she should go gather some facts so that when her station came back on the air after the, the power was restored, um, she'd be able to, to broadcast. She didn't, quite, she didn't really understand at all the, the severity of the disaster at, the, at that time. And here's a brief extract of a few of the messages she sent out on KENI. Jim Murphy and Bill Somerville at Point Hope, your families are A-OK. Mr. and Mrs. R.W. Fisher have uh, lost their children. They can't find them. Mr. and Mrs. Fisher are at the home of Charles Ball. Jeannie Chance, broadcasting messages on... Anchorage radio station, KENI. A big part of what she was doing was trying to communicate to people individually who survived and where people were, right? 
Yeah, that was a big part of it. You had, you know, no phone service in the city. The power was out. It was it was pitch dark. Uh, there was a sense of a real dislocation and isolation in town. You had a lot of people who were missing family members. They didn't know, you know, where where their children were or their their husbands or wives. And then you had a lot of other people who uh, were fine and wanted their loved ones to know that, but couldn't get in touch. And uh, people just began walking up to Jeannie at the police station uh, and and asking her to relay these messages over the air, almost using the uh, the radio like, you know, uh, Twitter or some kind of social media. A big theme of your book, John, is how Anchorage citizens almost instantly became what you call a wave of unofficial first responders. In fact, uh, Jeannie Chance was downtown and saw some of this happening just minutes after the quake. What did she see? So one of the places she uh, went immediately after the quake, and I think we're, you know, we're talking literally within a few, a few minutes, was the J.C. Penney building downtown Anchorage, which was really the, you know, was the only department store or anything like it. And when Jeannie got there, the, the concrete facade of the building had actually just started sloughing off of, of the structure and was continuing to fall even as she was there, these, these big hunks of, of concrete. And it was it was burying cars and and burying people uh, who had the misfortune of of being on the sidewalk outside the building at that time, or who, who were trying to escape from the inside of the building. And when Jeannie got there, there was already this pretty sophisticated rescue operation going around this particular uh, station wagon, which had been flattened by a, a, an enormous hunk of the debris. And there were many people who were working, you know, in concert at the direction of this one guy who'd sort of stepped up as a to lead the group to actually pull the concrete apart using, you know, two different vehicles pulling in either direction. Then someone, you know, ran and got a, a cutting torch and was able to cut the roof a uh, hole in the roof. And, and they were able to get this woman out um, of, of the vehicle. She survived. Um, and this was all done by civilians, which even in the moment you know, struck Jeannie as, as very surprising. One thing that's so fascinating is that even while the citizens were kind of self-organizing to help each other, the city officials were pretty worried that the population might panic or that there might be looters. Yeah, right away, one of the first kind of organized, you know, self-organizing efforts was led by this um, just kind of middle manager in the Anchorage uh, Public Works Department, this very brash, uh, you know, kind of kind of arrogant guy named Dick Taylor, who in that situation was sort of exactly what you wanted, because you wanted someone who was just going to step up and make some decisions without really worrying about, you know, the propriety of them. You know, he he gathered a bunch of volunteers together who'd kind of, uh, you know, uh, come into the police station after the quake and said, OK, you guys are all uh, going to guard the the storefronts downtown. He had wrecked storefronts that were just ripped open by by the quake. And he, his first instinct was to make sure that no one was going to uh, steal stuff from them. So he got Anchorage's police chief to hastily deputize them and uh, tore up some bed sheets from the city jail and, and wrote police on them and tied them to their arms and, se- and sent them out. But yeah, in, in the in the final analysis, if you compare that to the the effort to actually look for people trapped in those buildings or or find bodies of those who died that was proceeding in a much uh, less organized and and far more sluggish fashion um so you can sort of hold up the two examples and and get a sense of what the priorities were was it surprising to many people and and especially to disaster relief experts uh later just the the role 
that volunteers played in this and the initiative that was taken by them? The conventional wisdom at that time, and, and it's still, uh, you know, sort of expectations that that we tend to live with is that in these moments of upheaval, uh, when, when you have these great disruptions to, to normal life, that society as we know it will sort of fall apart. And uh, there'll be this great unraveling. Uh, humans, whatever the worst part of our natures, will, will come to the fore. And um, you'll have helpless people who are confused and need clear instructions. You'll have panicked people. Um, all of that was seems very much to have been in people's minds. I mean, even even Jeannie Chance uh, is, is a good example of it in the sense that, like a lot of people, she stepped into this role as a kind of public information officer and spent the first few hours feeling uh, like an imposter, feeling like, you know, why am I doing this? Shouldn't, shouldn't some, you know, authority figure uh, be doing this? And it, it took, uh, even as she was doing the work, it took her a while to get her mind around the fact that, you know, this is where responsibility was was falling. It was falling on everyone's shoulders uh, equally. And, and it was going to take people like her to step up and, and do that work. Tell us about the experience of one volunteer, Bill Davis. Yeah. So Bill Davis was a... Um, a psychology professor at a small liberal arts college in, in Anchorage. But he had this hobby on weekends where he was part of something called the Alaska Rescue Group, which uh, was a, a bunch of guys who loved mountain climbing and, and outdoors stuff like that and would get together to train doing you know fake rescues and avalanches or landslides and things like that. And after the earthquake, Davis uh, showed up at the police station the following morning and uh, saw a lot of the members of his group milling around the, the lobby looking for, for work to do and, and wound up finding out that the, the fire department had yet to stage any real methodical search and rescue operation and uh, ended up being uh, put in charge of the whole thing. Uh, the fire department just said, OK, you, you've got the skills, you've got the personnel already. You should take this over. And so he spent the next I don't know how many days in a, in a room in the back of the fire station running this uh, this operation where they scoured every inch of the city, you know, often three or four different times looking for survivors and, and bodies. One thing that's fascinating is that this earthquake came right at the peak of Cold War tensions. And related to that, there was a team of researchers at Ohio State University. As soon as they got word about the earthquake, they headed up to Anchorage. What were they looking for? It was bankrolled by the U.S. military. Uh, the military had reached out to these sociologists. It was, very, it was three of them. It was, that was the extent of the, the, the staff at that point and wanted them to essentially parachute into disaster areas uh, to look at them as proxies for nuclear war. Again, this, this thinking that you know, these, these disasters were going to unleash all of this panic and chaos the military wanted to see, well, what's it going to look like if, if the Soviets, uh, you know, uh, do a nuclear strike on an American city? We, they wanted to get their heads around how to control that chaos in advance. Um, and natural disasters seems like the only possibility to do that. And what happened? What, what did they find? And how did that contrast with, with what they were expecting? Yeah, well, very quickly, it became apparent that, um, you know, some of their their questions just weren't going to apply. I mean, even the, the moment the first graduate students walk off the the plane, and I know this because, uh, you know, I had access to all of the transcripts of their their recordings that they were running. You know, the, the graduate student starts asking this guy at the at the, the gate at this military base, uh, you know, who's making decisions about uh, ticketing, you know, airplane ticketing and uh, obviously, you know, what, what's the new system in place? And basically the guy's just like, we're just making it up, you know, and 
and they, they just kept finding again and again that that yes these the old structures had you know disintegrated and and the old ways of of making decisions you know w- had just completely fallen apart but that in their place was this much looser um but you know very uh, resourceful and effective way of of getting things done and that that really was made possible uh, by the altruism and the resourcefulness and the and the cooperative spirit of the people who were were teaming up to to get these things done. And one thing they noticed almost immediately was that people were listening to those radio broadcasts and this constant flow of information. And as, as you note in the book, a lot of that information wasn't so happy, and yet it turned out to be really important to people. Why? Yeah, I mean, that was especially true the first night. I mean, you had, like I said, you had, you know, no communication within the city, no communication outside of the city. People were basically thrown by the earthquake, landed somewhere and had to look around and figure out, you know, what the hell had just happened. And, uh, you, you know, these accounts that, that I've, I've read, you know, I've read hundreds of, of first person accounts of the, the quake, many of which were actually collected by Jeannie um, in the months after, but they all sort of come back to this theme of, of a kind of uh, disorientation and loneliness. So, you know, people wondering is, I'm looking at the wreckage of my neighborhood is, is this the worst hit area in town? Or is this just indicative of, of, you know, far worse destruction ev- everywhere else? Um, one, one guy said, you know, you, you wonder if you're the last man. And I think he meant it sincerely. Um, so, so getting any information in a situation like that, uh, is valuable, even if it's information about how bad the situation is. It's it's clarifying in a way, and I think it gives you um, a sort of point uh, with which you can you know handle on reality again, and your sense of of uh, your own place in in this situation can can regather around that. Um, a, a neighbor of Jeannie's who who I who I talked to, I remembered listening to her on the radio that night, and she she said something very evocative to me. She said, you know, in a situation like that, information is a form of comfort. You know, it doesn't have to be comforting information. Just just the knowledge itself serves a purpose. We're speaking with John Mualam, author of the new book This Is Chance. More coming up on some of the lessons learned from that disaster. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies, and I'm Jim Meggs. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we continue with our interview with John Mualam, let's hear another excerpt from those remarkable broadcasts made by Jeannie Chance in the days immediately after the earthquake. We've received a call here at the fire station. Meryl Flieger, who lives on 86th Avenue, the fire department dispatcher said it sounded like children calling, and they said, please come home. 
So Jeannie Chance was communicating all this information. She's sitting there close to the police and, and the fire department, and they're asking her to send out messages, even though she was part of a private radio station. It was almost like playing a public role. What can we learn from this about the best way for people in positions to know what's going on to communicate during a crisis? The most important point is is to recognize how valuable that that information is. Um, I think that there's, uh, you know, it, it seems like sometimes there's a, a hesitancy to, um, you know, trust the public with information. Um, and I think what you see in Anchorage is, um, you know, that that people really uh, were, were again were comforted by it and could use it to gauge, uh, you know, what they were supposed to do next. Um, so I think that's one one real takeaway. And and again, you know, it, it wasn't a perfect system. There were things that Jeannie and other people at the station reported that that turned out not to be true. You know, that that occasionally happened. So I don't want to idealize it. But yeah, and I, and I also think that it's sort of astonishing to look back and see how much uh, trust was put in Jeannie, that it was really she was told explicitly by by the police chief, it was up to her to figure out what to broadcast and what not to broadcast. And this, again, was a moment when when she felt, you know, very insecure about, you know, well, who am I to make these decisions? You know, she had she hadn't quite uh, caught up to the reality that that she was rising to that to that challenge. I think it speaks to our current situation during the pandemic that the leaders who have shared information about what they don't know as well as what they know and have taken the public into their confidence and treated us all uh, as intelligent beings uh, who make very often good moral choices are, are proving to be the people who I think are are uh, giving the best information and helping us the most in 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 the current pandemic. So I think that what you're saying about uh, information and what happened in the days right after the Anchorage earthquake uh, really uh, echoes down to our current day. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I see that in my own state with uh, you know my governor Jay Inslee. I feel like he's he's done a really good job of of communicating in a way where you know he's he's clearly in a leadership position. There's no doubt about that. But he's also addressing the the population of Washington as as a collective body that we're all working toward the the same goal. In in contrast to that kind of calm and informative management, you talk in your book about a concept called elite panic. What is elite panic? Basically, the, the simplest way to describe it is that uh, those in power uh, who uh, go into these situations expecting uh, an unraveling of the civilian population and expect panic and violence uh, from, from ordinary people, then try to clamp down on, on that preemptively and end up uh, acting with a kind of defensiveness or, or even violence, uh, you know, looking to uh, and end up sort of lashing out uh, at, at the people who aren't really even panicking at all and, and provoking some of the same conflict that, that they're so afraid of happening. What happened with crime right after uh, the Anchorage earthquake? Because I've been very struck um, in, in New York City, for example, where crime rates right now after the eruption of the pandemic are way down. Was that what happened also in Anchorage and in Alaska? Yeah, there really was no crime to speak of, at least in the you know the first four or five days that I looked very closely at. Um, 
the which was I think very unexpected. I mean, Anchorage was uh, they had a crime problem at at that time in 1964. I mean, Jeannie's first job every morning was to go to the police station and look at the overnight crime reports and and do a, a report for the radio about it. And I've seen you know dozens, if not more, of those reports. And every day it's you know there's a stabbing or there's a fight or uh, you know holdups uh, at gas stations and liquor stores. Uh, so suddenly uh, you had none of that. Uh, the, all this fear of looting that um, had, had led this, this guy to put out his deputized civilians, uh, there, it never materialized. Did your research into the earthquake in Alaska, what, 56 years ago, did that research change your view of human nature? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know how pessimistic I was about human nature going into the to the project, but it, it definitely bolstered, um, you know, a sense that uh, people can be trusted. But yeah, it was a really powerful thing. You know, I, I, I started just by looking at, um, you know, so many of these uh, interviews with with people uh, that either Jeannie had done or the sociologists had done, just recounting, you know, from their own first person perspective, what happened immediately after the quake through the next several days. And, and you pick up all these anecdotes of exactly what we're talking about, people cooperating, people being, uh, you know, finding ingenious solutions to problems. And then you go and you, you see, well, you know, what did these sociologists make of all of it? And, and you see that they actually have worked up, you know, terms of art and seen these, these exact kind of phenomenons play out again and again in different disasters. Um, and, and it just, there's this whole intellectual framework around it and all of this social science to, to prove that it's, it's actually uh, the rule rather than the exception. So I think that definitely, um, you know, makes an impact on you. So your point isn't that the volunteers do everything great and the people who work for the government or the official first responders are kind of helpless, but more that the officials shouldn't be surprised that a bunch of civilians want to pour into help. They ought to expect it, maybe plan for it. Yeah, and I think that's what the sociologists now will tell you, too, is that that's one of the, the big takeaways from from all of their research is, is that um, you really need to look at uh, civilians as a resource rather than an obstacle. Um, and uh, and I think that goes for the civilians themselves, too. You know, like we can't afford to have people uh, in, in disaster situations feeling like they don't have a role to play. Right. They need to feel empowered and capable um, because we need all the help we can we can get. You know, so, yeah. But I do think for for those in positions of power, the 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 idea is really to harness that energy uh, rather than try to contain it and and make sure it doesn't get in sort of the official responses way. John Mualem, author of This is Chance, The Shaking of an All-American City, a voice that held it all together. Thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Yeah, thanks a lot. Before our conversation, Jim, your recommendations. I'm afraid my first recommendation is a little bittersweet, Richard. Um, today, I am listening to a lot of the music of John Prine, one of the greatest songwriters of of my lifetime, who we just got word passed away this week from coronavirus, as have so many. Um, someone who was incredibly influential and just a uh, a real treasure in the world of of music and a, and a real loss. Another recommendation falls more in the realm of what to watch when you're stuck at home for a few weeks. And, and this is escapist, right? 
this is escapist and really, really interesting. It's an FX series called Devs, uh, Devs as in developers. And it's directed by this great director, Alex Garland, who won an Oscar for the movie Ex Machina in 2014 that I couldn't, I just cannot recommend enough. He's a deep thinker about the relationship between technology and human beings. This series is very creepy, very weird, very disturbing and really, really watchable. So uh, we had talked earlier about, you know, what are we doing? What are we doing differently in this time? Um, you know, when I talked to you on the phone yesterday, you were out clipping the onion grass in your <laughs> in your in your front yard. Um, but I think like a lot of people, we're, my, we're baking bread. We're I've got um, some of my family around, which is nice doing more gardening. But especially, I have to say, I'm trying to take time to be thankful for being in a position to do those things. People like us have to recognize how privileged we are that this is an option, you know, that we're not living with four people in a one bedroom apartment or we're not forced to ride the subway to work uh, at this time. We have the, the luxury of being able to isolate. That is not something anybody should take for granted. So and, and not just that, but parents of young children uh, potentially going stir crazy. It's, it's a much more difficult time for, uh, for many people than it is for us. So back to our interview with John Moallen, Jim, what were your main takeaways? Well, as you know, this is my wheelhouse. I mean, I've studied disasters for a long time. I'm really intrigued with this idea of elite panic. I was in New Orleans shortly after Katrina and talked to the National Guard forces and others. You know, you talk about about uh, information where the officials don't trust the population. They think everybody's going to going to riot and loot and panic. All these stories we heard about bodies piling up in the Superdome and armed gangs roving around and shooting at helicopters. I don't know if people remember that. Most of that stuff was wildly exaggerated. There was actually kind of almost a racist tinge to some of it. This assumption that, of course, everybody was going to be roaming around, you know, in violent gangs. Crime went down after Katrina. But that assumption was dangerous because it slowed down the relief effort. There were volunteers going out in their own boats to try to rescue people. And they were told, wait a minute. You, you know, it's dangerous out there. Guys are shooting or they told the helicopters, hold on. People are shooting at helicopters. That actually wasn't true. Yeah. I think one worry, though, right now is the lack of trust by one side for the other. That could end up hurting our relief effort from this current pandemic. I, I, trust is a very important part of, of any recovery, whether it's trust in citizens or even sometimes trust in government that the services will come through. You need very consistent, honest messaging. I think if you look at some of the communication from the White House, it's kind of all over the map. There's lots of good information, but there's lots of messy, sloppy, inconsistent information. That makes people not able to trust anything. That's a very bad scenario. 
it it needs to be clear. And when the officials don't know something, they should just say they don't know it. They shouldn't be BSing us. Absolutely. For instance, we don't have enough tests. Uh, we haven't had enough protective equipment in many cases. That may not be the fault of any one person, but it sure helps if we have uh, an honest assessment of what's going on and also when we may get some relief on these things. The flip side is this is not the kind of disaster where people can just surge out and start, you know, searching through buildings for for, you know, for people like they did in Anchorage. So at first you might think, well, there's not that much of a role for citizens. But in fact, if you look around, people are doing all kinds of amazing things. You know, a friend of mine is organizing all her friends in the weaving and and knitting communities and to, to be making all these masks, all these different businesses have have started making equipment. People are delivering food for those who can't get out. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff happening. And I feel that we need the officials to recognize that maybe a little bit more. If you're too draconian, people like to have a little bit of autonomy and be respected that they're going to make sensible choices. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out what we can do for you at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.